Challenges remaining, number 38. I am Ben Rothenberg, joined as always by Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hey, Ben. It's the middle of May. There's a lot of other stuff going on, other sports. Uh, basketball and hockey playoffs are both in full swing, but tennis has been making some noise lately. It has, it has. And before we continue on the podcast, I just have to say, Ben, I'm really annoyed that you haven't spoken to me since the Australian Open. Well, I hope that you haven't noticed that. You unfollowed me. I actually bought a Blackberry just so I could unfollow you. <laughs> Who does that? Honestly, I don't know who. So as you can tell on this show, we're going to talk about Sloane Stevens and her profile on ESPN Magazine and her thoughts on Serena Williams, echoing a topic we did a couple weeks ago, but some new revelations or confirmations on that that have been pretty fun so far, I think. We're also going to talk about the less fun topic of John Tomic, Bernie's father, who's been charged in Madrid with attacking a hitting partner and potentially accused of also striking his own son and sort of what this means for the ATP and what tennis should do about it. And then we're going to talk about Madrid, the big event that's going on this weekend, uh, just sort of about how this tournament came to be, what it is, and what we think about it. And then lastly, we're going to play you an interview with one of the big standout stars so far in Madrid, Laura Robson, who absolutely dismantled Agnieszka Radwanska in their second round match on Monday. 6-3, 6-1. That was something, Courtney, wasn't it? It was. Radwanska was was definitely not at her best. Uh, she hit an, a surprising number of, of unforced errors. I want to say it was something like 37, but Laura was nails. She just really hung with Aga, and you can see by the scoreline, I mean, for that scoreline to happen, Laura Robson really had her A-game. A yeah, so she has her A-game in the interview, too, so we she hope does. that you will enjoy that. And should be a good show. Ready to roll? Rolling. Rolling with the homies. Rolling with the homies. <laughs> it's a good movie. It is. It's a great movie. Great, great movie. She's dead now, though. It's kind of sad. Isn't it? It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So the big bombshell, to use an all-cap style, of the weekend was the Sloane Stevens profile that came out in ESPN Magazine, which was written by Marin Kogan. It was an interview that had been done with Sloane shortly after she lost in Miami, so late March. And it only came out in May. So the time lag on this, I think, is a little bit important mm -hmm. for where where she went in this interview. And she was talking about her much-discussed relationship with Serena Williams. Like we talked about on the show a couple episodes ago, we said that maybe too much was made of trying to make them this easy, simple mentor-mentee relationship you know, veteran, rookie, best friends, whatever. Maybe that wasn't all that was there because there were some signs about, you know, Twitter stuff or something. But I, that was all speculation. Then Sloan comes out in this magazine and starts with a story about how when she was 12 years old, she went to see Serena play at Fed Cup in Delray and Serena did not sign her poster, which is especially important because this poster has been a recurring prop in this narrative. Courtney, can you explain what this poster symbolizes in this whole thing? Absolutely. So so as Sloane continues to tell the story in the magazine, she's, she was annoyed that uh, neither Serena or Venus stopped to sign the poster, but she put it up on her wall anyway, and then eventually had taken it down. So, But during the Australian Open, the word got out, and I have to assume that it was from Sloane, because people don't make this up, No, that she had a poster of Serena on her wall when she, she was growing up. She told that to somebody at some point. Yeah, she told that to somebody at some point, or her mother did, or whatever. And so it became this story of, of you know, especially after she beat Serena. I think that's, to me, in my opinion, that's really where the kind of the idol worship angle came from mm -hmm. fairly like you yeah you you grew up with a poster of this woman on your wall like sorry if the media puts you know jumps to the conclusion that she might have been an idol you know what i mean so yeah so it, it became kind of a a recurring throwaway line that you put into any story involving sloan preparing to play serena whether it was in brisbane or in melbourne yeah or after she beat Serena. After she beat Serena, she was by the interviewer, I think it was Renee Stubbs. Renee asked Sloan in the on-court interview, you know, you just beat your idol, you know, this woman you had on, you know, on your wall, you're into the semifinals, can you believe it? And Sloan just kind of has this look of like, she can't believe it. And then she says, I guess I should put a poster of myself up next or something like that. Yes. 
So it, it, the idea of putting up a new poster was from Sloan. There you go. Yes, yeah, so Sloan says in this magazine, I'm just going to quote a bunch from this. She says that she was devastated because they didn't sign it, whatever. And then after that, I was over it. I found a new player to like because I didn't like them anymore. Then she goes on to talk about what's happened since Australia, since the poster comment, since Sloan upset an injured Serena in Melbourne. Sloan says, she's not said one word to me, not spoken to me, not said hi, not looked my way, not been in the same room with me since I played her in Australia. And that should tell everyone something. How she went from saying all these nice things about me to unfollowing me on Twitter. Article says, her mom tries to slow her down, but Sloan is insistent. Like, seriously, people should know. They think she's so friendly and she's so this and she's so that. No, that's not reality. You don't unfollow someone on Twitter, delete them off BlackBerry Messenger. I mean, what for? Why? And then Sloan starts talking about a cryptic tweet, which we had actually mentioned on the show last time. Yep. Where Serena, a few days after losing to Sloan, sent out a three-word tweet that said, I made you. And Sloan says in the interview, I was like, you don't, you really don't think I know that's about me? Yeah. Yeah. And then talking about how she wasn't involved in her tennis for the first 16 years of her career. So how can she be a mentor, which is totally valid. Totally valid. But this is an incredibly candid admission of this dynamic from Sloan that really sort of does a complete about face on the narrative that she herself played a huge part in creating previously. Exactly. I mean, I think that that for me initially, that was something that's been bubbling under the surface, I think. I don't know if you felt this, Ben, but I know that in my interactions with Sloan or in press conferences with her since the Australian Open, whenever questions are brought up about Serena, there is kind of this, you can see it in her body language and in her facial expressions that, that she just really wanted to distance herself from Serena. Yeah. And it was it was pretty clear. And, and really kind of in, in certain things that she would kind of say you know, really hint at or say explicitly that the media really ran with the wrong narrative, right? That it's the media's fault, that the media came up with this mentor-mentee, idol-worship, BFF narrative because the media was bored and had nothing else and had to be reductive and whatever it was. And that wasn't the case. And I think that, that what was disappointing to me reading her, reading the article, and obviously we don't know, she could have totally taken ownership of all this, but the quotes weren't used, although it doesn't seem like that would have been the case, because the the writer does acknowledge that Sloane played a part in perpetuating these myths that she's now disavowing. But that's what has been a bit disappointing to me when it comes to kind of how Sloane has handled a lot of this, is a a lack of ownership in her role in all of this. That that she's the one that that said, yeah, I had a poster of Serena on my wall. And when people brought up the notion of mentors and idols and friendship and closeness and all that, she never disavowed any of it um, until like with the last couple of months. So, you know... I'm going to read some quotes from Sloane in the past. It come from past press conferences, and these are not. This is a partial list of what she said when asked about Serena. Um, Sloan said at the U.S. Open last year, "We really enjoy each other. We just have a really good relationship. Whenever I see her, we're laughing, we're giggling. I feel like I knew her in my past life or something. I don't know. It's so strange. She's not definitely not going to tell me how to beat her. We have a good relationship, and I'm really happy that we've come this far." Later adds, "I love her to death." And then again, "I love her. Obviously, she's been a great, really great influence in my tennis career." And then again, oh my god, I love her to death. She's amazing. Now she's like an actual person. And I'm like, oh, hi, how's it going? She's not a hero anymore. She's just a friend. And that continued pretty consistently for a while. Through Brisbane. Yeah, through Brisbane. And even up until, up at the Australian Open before the quarterfinal, she was still saying, you know, similar things of like, you know, we're friends. I, I She's great. And, you know, all sorts of things. So when people go back and do the research, I mean, the person that was distancing themselves from Sloan was Serena. Yeah. You know, Serena was the one that had that real key quote about the mentor-mentee thing where she says, how can I be, it's hard to mentor somebody when you're competing against them. And, yeah. you know, that was, I think, for me at least, the first time that I stopped and kind of really took a, a second look and a new look and a fresh look at their dynamic. And that's when I started to kind of reverse, not reverse track, because I wasn't pushing the BFF narrative either. I was just like, this is what Sloan said. That's when I really kind of thought there's something bubbling under the surface here, that it's yeah. not, things are not, you know, shiny, happy people holding hands and kind of backed away from that. Whatever was bubbling definitely exploded <laughs> into a huge mess that just, you know, might have ruined the microwave it was in or something. I mean, this was sure. this was a big thing. I mean, this was like a national general sports story, Sloan Stevens interview. So what do we what do we make of it then? What do we make of Sloan deciding to say these things? Do we like it? Do we not like it? Do we respect it? Do we think that she's something wrong or something right? What what do we make of it all? I love it. 
I think it's great. Let's have more of this across the board from everyone. I mean, you know, I think that anybody who's listened to this podcast, you've probably heard both, I think, Ben and myself really kind of lament the gentlemanliness of the ATP and the... Yeah, well, you know what I mean? Like, like everybody seems to just say the right things and it's not always the truth. It just can't always always be the truth, you know? And we can all disagree as to what the truth is, but if something is your truth, say it. I don't really, and then, and you know, I have to say that for as many comments and honestly, like I think that SI Beyond the Baseline was like kind of the first mainstream media outlet to pick up the story and kind of transcribe the quotes from the print piece because ESPN didn't post the article online until Monday. Yeah, that was not smart of them. Yeah, so we had it up, you know, for a couple of, uh, we were kind of the, the only ones and for a couple of days and the post blew up. I mean, at this point, there's over 300 comments to the post, which is if you read Beyond the Baseline, you know that like if a, if a post gets more than five comments, it's kind of like news. Yeah. <laughs> so this is really blown up and people have been in there really writing these long essays about both Serena or Sloan and team Serena, team Sloan. And for the most part, everybody's generally, I'd say about 80 to 90% team Serena on this, at least the people who have been commenting. But to me, I would just rather have a player say stuff like this. And yes, we can all argue as to whether or not this is good PR or bad PR if Sloan was right to say these things. But if that's how she felt, that's how she felt. And clearly, because if you read the article, her mom tries to stop her twice from going into these stories. And Sloan is just kind of like, yeah, I hear you and I'm going to tell it anyway. I think that it says a lot about how much all this has kind of hurt her. And maybe that there is as much as she wants to say like, oh, we weren't really great friends and she wasn't my idol or my favorite player that that it does hurt her that Serena has been colder to her than she would like I guess is probably an accurate way to say so yeah but I I will say this I honestly don't think that this is going to hurt her from a public relations perspective I think this if anything this is a bit of any publicity is good publicity for her Mm -hmm. gets you all talking about Sloan again And this was not so offensive or so, you know, ridiculous what she said. It might seem like that if you're in like a tennis bubble all the time. But from a general outside perspective, I think this was relatively understandable. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think that means it was wise or that it will do her any favors when she sees Serena in the future. This will not help her get the relationship the way she wants it to be. And that's also part of why it's interesting when this interview happened and when it got published, because it happened a couple days after, as the article frames it, you know, that really brutal loss she had to Radvanska at Miami when she was completely shut down with the press afterwards. And then in the meantime, since then, Serena and she played Fed Cup together and seemed to be getting along okay. So if Serena and she had thought at all over that uh, tie in Delray, coincidentally in Delray once again together, no poster this time, I don't think. <laughs> if they had, you know, patched their split or whatever now this comes out a few weeks after that and completely undoes it and you know i think i just think it's interesting timing and i think i just hope i just hope that they play each other again soon (laughs) because this is the sort of you know juice to rivalry that we hope gets taken advantage of because if they're just talking about each other in the press room that gets forced at some point Mm -hmm. start having them be naturally opposed against each other on court and it becomes a relevant dynamic in american tennis that we can discuss and enjoy and hopefully Hopefully they keep talking. It'll be interesting. I don't think Serena's commented on it yet in Madrid. No, no. And people didn't ask her about it after her opening round match because apparently she was in a bit of a mood. Uh-huh. So people were like, well, at least from what I understand, uh, you know, a few writers on site were like, well, I'll just save it the next time around. But, you know, I mean, I think that the two things that, that I really kind of take away, not take away, but two additional thoughts on the whole yeah, sure. situation is, first of all, you know, and I think that Maria Sharapova gets to this in what her reaction was when she was asked about the comments, she said, look, I'm, you know, this is my job. I'm a competitor. Like I am out there to win and I want to beat everybody. I'm not going to like strike up a conversation with somebody about the weather and then take the court to play against them. You know, that's just not what I'm going to do now, obviously. So in that way, she kind of sides with Serena kind of, but then she also says, you know, but good for Sloan for, you know, saying what that's how she felt and getting a different perspective out there or whatever, which I think was, not a not so underhanded dig <laughs> at Serena. But I really, I mean, I, I was a bit shocked or not, I mean, not shocked, but taken aback by fans reactions to things where it was really kind of like either you thought that Sloan had no right to be saying what she said and therefore 
what she, the content of what she said was ignored uh-huh. or it was like oh sloan was totally right and thank god somebody's finally said something because serena gets a free pass and blah 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 and i kind of didn't really understand why like both those things couldn't be true yeah it could be a little both it's you know like just because like it was probably unwise for sloan to say what she did and if i was her agent i would have been like whoa dude like no you you can't you just can't you know, mm-hmm. I would have probably advised her against like saying, you know, being this brutally honest to the press, especially to a big, you know, ESPN, the magazine, it's going to get huge exposure. Like just because it was unwise doesn't mean that the what she said didn't have merit. No, not at all. And that's the thing. I think that if we in the press are truth seekers, quote unquote, then having her say her truth, we can't diss that too much. Right. Maybe from we're not her agent. We're not her PR. Um, so if this is her letting us into what her view of the tennis world is that's good and it also sort of underlies and i think we talked about this before with sloan that you know she's a bit of a, a weirdly sort of loose cannon impressed sometimes yeah or just like you you see a lot of gears turning in what and how she chooses her answers when you see what she chooses not to say just mm-hmm. as much as you you see what she chooses to say and this will sort of always be with her as sort of a thing like we know that now you know you might not be letting on everything in the future because we've seen you break from that now and that will stick yeah i mean you see that with you know almost most players who are young and eventually kind of become stars every every single one of them has a media faux pas it happens Um, a media snafu where they're especially you see this a lot with the women because typically the ones that are that are really charming that are getting you know attention from the media when they're young in their 16 to 20 year old age range they're fairly precocious. Yeah. They're they're smart. They're witty. They're sarcastic because, and that's what we, as people who are like twice their age, are kind of or a few years older than them, are like responding to, right? Like that's why we find them interesting. We're like, oh, you're hilarious. Like I would actually hang out with you. Like you're funny. You know things like that. And then just everyone's, you know, every single one of them has let down their guard at some point and said something that gets them in trouble. And the only thing here that was just so surprising about this interview is that you know this wasn't a situation where. Sloan went off to an interview with an with a interviewer and she went by herself without any supervision and maybe like the interviewer kind of like was cool or whatever and she was like feeling relaxed and so she kind of let her her you know words fly like her mom was right there her mom tried to stop her you know from from yeah. kind of going into these stories these kind of petty stories and Sloan was like no I'm you know the people have to know you know that sort of thing I think that that was just really really surprising yeah. I have to say it was an interesting uh, jolt in the arm for the rest of the women's tennis year especially on the American side so for that we are always grateful and it'll be interesting to see what the next chapters in this are i mean i don't know what the next step after you un- unfollow someone is i mean you can block them i guess or tweet more vague things about them so whatever <laughs> have, whatever whatever the well, next you know you can have your hitting partner tweet things that seemingly very clearly reference your feud but you know whatever whatever to each their own the other story of conflict in the tennis world is on the men's side this weekend it's a much different variety it didn't happen over pizza uh, with an ESPN reporter in Florida somewhere. This happened with John Tomic, uh, the somewhat already notorious father, Bernard Tomic, has been charged with hitting, with assaulting his son's hitting partner, Thomas Drouet, last week outside a hotel in Madrid. And there are also allegations from Drouet, mostly, it seems to be, that Tomic had also struck his son during a practice last two, last week in Monte Carlo or sometime in Monte Carlo. Tomic is charged with headbutting Drouet and hurting his neck and breaking his nose and just sort of a interesting thing that you don't often see in tennis too much. You don't see a lot of headbutting in this sport. Thank God. Yeah, it's probably a good thing. I prefer the headbutting to occur kind of like metaphorically with words. Yeah. Um, <laughs> rather than, than actual physical violence that draws blood and, and leaves a, a 29-year-old Frenchman unconscious in front of a player hotel. But hey, that's just me. I'm, I'm not John Tomic. What can you do? That's not a great look for tennis necessarily, the whole oh, unconscious not. Frenchman thing. No, yeah. not great. But yeah, so this story brings up a lot of issues we've talked about in more veiled terms or in less specific terms before about what tours should do about parental supervision, meaning supervising the parents, keeping an eye on coaches and internal camps and what the ramifications should be when something like this happens that isn't necessarily finalized yet. There's no conviction yet in this. Courtney, what do you what do you make of this incident? Are you surprised by it or not? And what do you 
make of what tennis should do next. I mean, the sad thing is, I mean, when the allegations started to leak out, you know, we were still trying to figure out what was going on. I think this was happening about Sunday evening, afternoon, nighttime, uh, my time anyway, on Sunday. There was a part of me that was very, okay, we need to be careful about this because we need to make sure we get the facts right. I mean, it felt like kind of like Boston Bombers-esque where it's like, I'm not going to retweet things just because like, it sounds interesting. Like, let's, you know, this is a person's reputation on the line. Like, this, we're talking about legal charges. Let's make sure we're, we're, we're talking about facts. Better to be right than to be first. Exactly. I didn't want to like participate in the rumor mill or to perpetuate that and things like that. So I was pretty pretty careful about that at the same time the other side of me was just like dude is john tomic of course this happened <laughs> yeah no that, that was a, that was a question we got from one of our listeners we asked for questions today from matt Farinchik, who asked us have you gotten to the point where you believe any story no matter how crazy about bernard tomic or his dad because i have he says and i mean yeah it's sad that it could come to such an extreme clearly bad news sort of thing with, you know, an assault charge that's being brought against a guy and everyone being like, oh, yeah, you know, I kind of saw this coming. Yeah. It's not, you don't want that. You know, you want this to be shocking and that it's not, I think, is disturbing in its own ways. Absolutely. And, you know, even more so, I mean, obviously the assault on Drouet was, you know, brutal and bloody and violent. But I think for me, what really made me, on one hand, really sh- not shocked, but kind of appalled, and at the same time also kind of relieved, is that, Jouet, the allegation from Jouet that t- John Tomic had hit Bernard Tomic during a practice in Monte Carlo last week that left Tomic younger Bernie uh, in tears. And, on so- and, you know, obviously that's obviously unfortunate on every level and horrible. But on some level, I kind of thought, thank God that this is now public. Like, yeah. thank God that his physical, physically abusive nature is not just something we talk about because nobody will really come go on record to say that he's like, physically abusive you know you need need a whistleblower on some level right exactly you needed somebody to say like this is now on the table this guy does this and this is he does this to his 20 year old son who is whether people like it or not part of the future of the atp and one of the future stars if not one of the current stars i was a bit relieved to kind of just finally have that on the table like let's talk about this let's let the chorus of objection swell Mm -hmm. to put pressure on the atp to actually do something, and on law enforcement as well, to actually do something that has teeth, as opposed to, I think one of our, another commenter, I think Unseated and Looming, raised the incident last year. Two years ago, yeah. In was 20, it two years in 20, ago? It was in 2011. Um, it was an incident that happened at a challenger, a 25K challenger in Germany. I remember I wrote about this a bunch when it happened. Between Elise Tamaella, who was a Dutch player, and the father of um, another player. The player is Karen Barbat, and her father's name is Mihai Barbat. Tama Ella was cheering for her friend um, who was playing against Karen Barbat. And the way the accounts have gone, obviously there's, you know, different sides to the story. But basically what happened is at least Tama Ella and the father, when they were on the sidelines cheering for opposite sides of this challenger match, got into some sort of altercation and Barbat knocked out Tama Ella and put her, gave her a concussion. And she has played. The father hit this other the fa- one. The father hit who was the player. another player who wasn't in this match. Uh, at least Tama Ella right. pulled out of the tournament after that. Played one tournament since, and then has not played a pro event since then. Obviously, I mean her ranking wasn't that good. Her results were maybe you could look at it and say, oh, maybe she didn't have that much in her. But clearly, this clearly changed her career and her life forever. But that is, I mean, that that definitely true. But I think that one one of the sh- the most disappointing and shocking things that came out of that incident which was already a a horrifically shocking incident how little or what little the itf even did in response one of the things that really affected her is that actually the father filed a complaint against Mm -hmm. at least tamaella about it saying that you know she had shoved him or something and then he punched her in the face but he was bringing it on her like you know she started this and she's not she's not a big girl yeah and he's apparently a huge guy and it just and the part the fact that you know he was the one who sort of blamed her, um, I think from what her brother was saying afterwards, right. it really sort of set her. Over but the I mean, the bottom line is that like nothing. The ITF did did basically nothing in response to that. Um, you know, he wasn't banned from ITF tournaments, which he should be. I'm sorry, you yeah. assault a player. I don't care who you are, I don't care what you do, but you are banned. You are banned from tournaments because this is a player safety issue. Mm-hmm. And how can players, you know? walk around a tournament site knowing that there's some loose cannon running around that's ridiculous so 
that's what the ITF did. It's an absolute failure. It's disgusting. I can't believe that they didn't do anything about it. Now, you take that to the ATP level. What's the ATP going to do now with, with John Tomic? You know, and in a much more kind of complicated question, what should they do? I know that, and I've already written, they should ban him. Tennis Australia should ban him. All these sorts of things because of my concern over player safety. And But you also have to wonder how much strain that will put on Bernard Tomic, who he can't fire his father. He can fire his coach, create distance from his coach, but he can't get away from his father. So he, he can get away from his father if they do it for him by banning him. His fa- if they say fa- you're not allowed on a tournament site, you're not allowed on, I don't know, Davis Cup or any official Tennis Australia training ground, Ber- they can still get together and do somewhere else. But if you if the ATP actively bans him, it can make him a not feasible coach. Absolutely. No, I understand that. But I'm saying that, like, what strain that puts on that father-son relationship and what will John Tomic do in response? That's what I'm worried about. Is that, yes, obviously, he could be banned and barred from Bernard Tomic's workplace, okay? Wherever that place may be all over the globe. But he is not banned and not barred from Bernard Tomic's home, from Bernard Tomic, you know, when Bernie goes back to... Well, that, that's on Bernie. I mean, that Absolutely really is the onus on him if he wants to get his own restraining orders or whatever. Yeah, but that's just a I mean, lot to ask of a 20-year-old kid who's like, feels like, obviously, we know, feels, you know, tremendously indebted to his father and is also under the control of his father. That's just the, the flip side of things. There's a part of me that worries that there's certain things that the tennis organization, like the punitive actions that they might take against John Tomic could create an extremely volatile situation for Bernard Tomic, and that's worrisome. That well, you doesn't... just hope that they give him the, the necessary support right. in terms of counseling, in terms of giving him some sort of advisor or minder, even just some, someone to sort of get him set up in his life to, you know, be without him. If it's something Bernie's willing to sign on to. And we don't know. I mean, Bernie was not the one who pressed charges against him. Bernie's not the one who reported he got hit. We don't know how often this has been happening in their lives before, if at all. It's, it seems unlikely that this is the first time it's ever happened. Yeah. So, you know, it's clearly there's something a pattern here, and their relationship has been complicated. Like, it's the same way it was for Elena Dokic, who also had a Croatian immigrant to Australia father who was problematic for her. Sorry, in terms of them splitting up and getting back together over and over again, I mean, it's hard, and it's uh, not a tennis issue. I mean, people in all aspects of the world have problematic family dynamics and with their parents and with their kids and whatever. But obviously the tennis magnifying glass and the stakes of playing on the elite levels of the tour uh, can exacerbate this and really put it in a public spotlight that we wouldn't know about if these were two people who, you know, were just having domestic disputes in Australia somewhere. Right. So I think it's I think it's interesting. I think that it'll be interesting to see what other players say about it. From what I've seen, I mean, people are being cautious, but they also say that that guy has no business being the ATP right. anymore. Even if just the hitting partner part of it's true. You can't assault a hitting partner. No, yeah, it has. I, like I said, like it's it's no different than, than, yeah, the ITF incident is that it doesn't matter why you did it or who you are or whatever, but you assault another member of a player's team. You assault anybody. I mean, like put it that way. If you assault a fan at a tournament, you should be banned from the tournament. Oh yeah. So banned from the tour. Yeah. Banned from the tour tournament, all that. So hitting partners, teams, like whatever the bottom line is that he left a dude in like a bloody pulp, you know, and he's claiming with his head. I mean, and he's claiming self-defense because he says that like drew a grabbed his arms which, seriously, dude, come on. So, whatever. I mean, it's he shouldn't he just shouldn't be around. No. Absolutely should not. not. So that we agree on. It'll be interesting to see how quickly action gets taken and if this helps Bernie in the long run. I mean, obviously, Bernie on court is something of an enigma right now, to put it mildly. We don't know what to expect from him week in, week out. His results are all over the place. He's seen as someone who really isn't living up to his potential as well as he could. So maybe if the dad gets banned and gets forcibly removed from his career, maybe in the long term it will prove to have been a huge positive for him. I mean, I, I should hope so, so, but at the end of the day, it's his dad. doesn't matter yeah. if he's his coach or, like, whatever. Like, you can't get – I mean, he is – in his life, he is – you can still be extremely like emotionally manipulative. I mean, Tom, you know, Bernie can still feel like everything that he does is like, you know, for his father and get on the phone and have his dad like screaming and yelling at him and all these sorts of things. This is why, like, I don't know, like, you know, obviously everybody's like looking at the banning as being a, a, the solution. And I totally agree that John Tomic should be banned 
from the tour. But I, I'm just, I'm really nervous about what that means for for Bernard. I. But on some level, though, what he does when he's on the phone with his dad after matches, that's sort of his own tour. The tour can't do anything. No, about he that. the tour I mean, can't. But I'm saying that there, are, there's collateral damage there. I mean, you're talking about a 20 year old kid. I mean, we like joke about Tomic and everything, but he's 20 years old and in a lot of ways kind of, it seems like, uh, you know, kind of undergone a a bit of arrested development. And he has been, whether because he feels proactively loyal or defensively loyal, tremendously loyal to his father, you know, throughout his career. Best case scenario, this excises John Tomic from Bernie's career and breaks that grip that John Tomic has over over Tomic's career, but I don't know. I mean, I'm a pessimist, so like, there's a part of me that's just like, oh, it's just not going to end well for Bernard. Time will tell. Yes. We wish him the best. We do. We hope that whatever, whatever he does, it he's uh, happy and, I don't know, hooning responsibly. <laughs> he can hoon irresponsibly. I don't care. That's fine. I'd, I'd rather him hoon irresponsibly than like, be getting beat in the face by his dad so exactly that's what we're saying <laughs> it was simpler times when it seemed like his main problem was hooning. seriously hooning and tanking <laughs> uh, those were the days those were the days so we got a couple questions about the status of the big tournament this week which is madrid this is the fifth year that it's been this big clay event in the calendar so it's still fairly new we got a couple of questions about that status, so here we go. Renaissance asked us, this will be the fifth year of the WTA mandatory event in Madrid. In all honesty and hindsight, was it a particularly smart move? And then Curtis asks us, why is Madrid a premier mandatory event and not Rome? Rome has more history and seems like a better fit than Madrid. So Courtney, you've been to both Rome and Madrid. I have. How do you feel about Madrid being the bigger one on the WTA side and just sort of its very quick elevation to being this sort of tentpole of the clay season. I think it's a bit of a joke. I mean, I I think that, you know, this whole marketing scheme of like, oh, the Caja Magica, as though like that's supposed to be. And I admit, before I went to Madrid, I definitely thought like, oh, the magic box, it must be like amazing because, you know, it's called the magic box because I'm super marketing. Yeah, I'm super literal like that. And like you literally roll up and it's not it's a kind of a pain to get to from the the train, you know, take the train out to the site and it's like a 20 minute walk and all these sorts of things. And you roll up and it looks kind of weird, but you're like, okay, I'll go with it. You know, Madrid, modern weird architecture and you walk in and it's just absolutely hideous and cavernous and empty and cold and everything i mean it's that whole venue is by far my least favorite venue on tour yeah for everything i've heard about it from people who've been there it's the big tournament i sort of least want to go to yeah, yeah, it's absolutely, it, it's terrible. There's no ambiance whatsoever. The stands are never full except for the finals and maybe the semifinals. They don't care at all about the women. No, not at all. It's really striking, I think, more than any other stop on the tour. And, I mean, obviously, at a lot of tournaments, there is a gap between attendance for men and women. Sure. But it's nothing like in Madrid. I mean, nope. in Madrid, there was a quarterfinal last year between Serena and Sharapova, which, whatever you think of that rivalry, is still the two biggest stars in the women's game facing off against each other. It looks like the stands are like a quarter full. Yep. I mean, what is that? Yep. What is that? And you can see that reflected in some of the other things in Spanish tennis right now with all of the problems their Fed Cup team has had when talking about not equal support for women's sports endeavors in Spain. Yep. It's reflected there. And yeah, just the ambience of those stadiums seems terrible. They seem cold. They seem metally. Yeah, seem it's constantly empty. And the way they're just sort of spaced out, even when it's full, it doesn't look full. Right. I mean, it's it's very, if you, if, on the main court, Manolo Santana court, I think, um, it's a lot of metal. Like, it, and, and it is, it is cold. And a lot of times when you're actually at the Madrid tournament, the weather, at least when I was there, it did get cold. So, like, it was cold and then the, the metal, it just was not pleasant. And it's such a contrast to, like the earthiness of the red clay. Yeah. You know, so it's a bit weird. And then the way... That's why I like the blue. Yeah, the blue actually did suit Madrid better. Like, in terms of, like, okay, if you're going to be weird and, like, futuristic, then, yeah, go look like you're in, like, a moon room. Like, a bouncy, bouncy hall. But, yeah, and then, like, the lower bowl of that main court is all, like, high price box seats. So it's always empty. Yeah. Always empty. Never full. No, it's just, it's just bad. It's your, it's And there's questions we got also are people pointing out stats where there's actually a bigger correlation between success at Madrid and success at that year's Wimbledon than at success at the French Open that year. Absolutely. I mean, it's just like the conditions there. The players saying the clay is much better this year. After all the complaints last year, it better be. Before that, there wasn't an emphasis on playing conditions, even before the blue. And the blue, I've 
said before and will say again that I was a huge fan of the blue. I just think they didn't get the execution of it as perfect as they needed to. And they should have tested it out a smaller event before they put it at this huge tournament. But I think, yeah, so they just seem to not really have the sort of organic tradition and, I don't know, yeah, there's feel the- to it that you want for a big European event. I mean, the European clay tour, for all of the you know, eye-rolling you do with this, is one of the more storied portions of, of tennis culture on the calendar. And it, the Italian Open, especially, mm-hmm. was by far fifth slam for several decades. And, and really rival level was level yeah, with the French Open, exactly. if not bigger than it for a long time. There were times when players back in the 70s, maybe even into the early 80s, would play Italy and then skip the French Open. Yeah, and so you've been to Rome. You just contrast the two for us. Just uh, what makes Rome better than Madrid as a tournament? It's Rome. I mean, like, it's, first of all, the Foro Italico is is awesome. It's um it's beautiful. It has what is my favorite secondary court in all the world, Pitrangeli court, which is a sunken red clay court and it's ge- it's pretty much general admission. You can just kind of like stand there and and watch. And as you're walking, so as you're walking past the court because it's sunken, you can kind of like peek over and and just watch some tennis and watch people, you know, whatever's going on and it's it's just a really intimate great court. The the main center court is built very steeply so mm-hmm. you can you're right on top of the action even if you're sitting at the very top so there's no like bad seats but just generally it's just warm there's history there you feel like things have happened you know at this tournament you know in the past that were that were really important toward t- for tennis history and great matches and and you just don't get that in madrid madrid just feels like a pop-up i mean i remember wa- uh, walking into the caja magica and like kind of gray berber type industrial carpet you know that Mm -hmm. that lines the the kind of inside area and it's like laid down with like duct tape kind of covering the seams and it's not it's not flat like there's wrinkles in it so you're kind of tripping as as if you're not watching yourself i mean it's just it's pop-up and it's it's cheap whereas rome just feels like this happens every year it's been happening every year for like 40 years and it'll happen for another 40 years and it's just a beautiful sight and then again because of the difference of conditions with madrid being at altitude and rome being much more similar to the conditions in paris i personally as a writer have always taken the results more seriously in Rome yeah. than I do in Madrid. And and it's, and it's a week closer, too. And it's a week closer, too. And so, like, for me, like, right now, what's happening in Madrid, I'll be honest, I kind of don't care. I just yeah, really seem don't... I just don't think that it's that important. And a lot of that, obviously, is because of the conditions. But a lot of it is also, I just... The way that the players treat it, I don't think the players treat Madrid as though it's a big deal. They take the paycheck, but I don't think they talk about it or I don't know. Maybe it, maybe it's just me. I just kind of think that like they go, they play, and then they go to Rome. It's like a yeah. warm up for Rome. So. Yeah, so that that seems like pretty much it. And so just a little, it's a minor imbalance, obviously, the way that the roadmap has it structured now between Premier Mandatory and Premier Five. Both are big events, but doesn't quite mesh with how it should yeah. be well ben would you rather getting back to i think it was renaissance's question would you have rather seen a separate premier mandatory event that you know instead of like a joint with madrid for the wta yeah seeing how madrid has embraced or not at all women's tennis um as a product from what we can tell from just judging the stands i mean administratively maybe and there's obviously equal prize money there and stuff i mean maybe they have done a good job organizationally of doing it people don't seem interested and i feel like berlin was a really good event yeah. that, used, that I think Madrid took the place of directly. Mm-hmm. It seemed to get really good support there. Obviously, Stuttgart is a, now a clay tournament, so it's sort of filling that niche a little bit in Germany. But Berlin's a huge, huge tennis market without any tournament right now, men or women, which is bizarre. So having them get that tournament back would be cool, I think. You know, There's other candidates. It just seems like the women don't need to necessarily follow along the men. Maybe this was the right move for the men to have a clay event in Spain of this level, of a master's level, when Rafa's on tour. Totally mm-hmm. get that. But for the women, they don't have a Rafa in Spanish tennis. Not that Carla Suarez Navarro isn't trying her hardest. We love you, Carla. We're rooting for you, dude. We wish you would have won the Estoril final. Yeah. Yeah, so I just I just think maybe the WTA should start trying to see other people. But obviously, organizationally, financially. Yeah, financially, I mean, you know, I think if you were to ask the players if they want the money or they want to take a pay cut and go play in front of full crowds. They all take the money. They all take the money. So As they should. Yeah, As yeah. They should. You know, it's a job. It is a job indeed. So to segue into our guest for today, we have a question from Tyler Green, who asks us, why does Laura Robinson take out stars but sometimes struggle against journeywomen? Is it the maturing process or something else? I mean, before we hear from her, 
Courtney, what do we make of Laura Robson's year in her career? Because they've been decidedly atypical. They have been atypical. I mean, I think that when I think of Laura Robson, I think of a player who really kind of emphasizes that, you know, that cliche of like tennis is 90% or 100% mental Mm -hmm. because all the shots are there. And when she plays well, when she can kind of get herself up to to play well, we've seen, I mean, of any of the young players, she's you know, one of the youngest, younger ones, and she's got the most scalps, yeah. right? I mean, Kleisters, Lena, Kvitova, and now... Redvanska this week. Yeah. And now Redvanska this week. And those are legit wins. I mean, the, you know, and so, you know, she, we know what she's capable of. We know how well she's able to play. And it's just really, you know, a thing that I think a lot of young players struggle with is that it's all fun and games to get yourself up to kind of feel like you have nothing to lose, that you're going to go out there and you're going to play. And it's a phrase that I don't like, but you're going to go out on a big stage and play against, you know, some of the best in the world and then really summon your best tennis. But, you know, the way that you get your ranking up and the way that you get seated high in tournaments is that you do it on a day in and day out basis. And just, you know, she she really does struggle with, I don't know, maintaining that focus and that clarity and intensity when she's playing on court seven in Estoril. Yeah. You know, which is tough. This is a problem that it's an experience thing. I mean, she plays yeah. up or down to the situation and the opponent. I mean, if she's playing someone ranked outside the top 100 on 7th Court and Estoril, she'll play, you know, like she's in a match in that situation. But if she's on Ash against a multi-Grand Slam champion, she'll, you know, bring her best yeah. and sort of rise and fall to the occasion. Right. So I think, that, I think that's something that you can learn your way out of. I think it's much better to be having this ridiculous upside and the valleys occasionally than no upside at all. Precisely. I don't think slow and steady wins the race necessarily in tennis. No. And uh, have this potential shown, I think, is makes her a hugely, hugely promising on-court and off-court. I mean, we're going to hear from her off-court about her off-court life and thoughts on the world of being a British a rising British star, which is a which is a unique scenario that on the one hand presents a lot of opportunities and on the other, you know, I'm not sure I would wish on anybody. I mean what was your kind of big takeaway from so we, we talked to Laura at Charleston. Yeah. When this recording was done. So what was your kind of big takeaway, Ben? My first takeaway I guess is that she just seemed very relaxed there. I mean, she'd been in the US for a while now. There was no British media in Charleston and I don't know if that makes a direct difference in her level of you know on guardness or whatever but she just seemed very much chilled out and in a happy place she had just beaten starhead candle <laughs> and uh, yeah she was in a, in a good frame of mind and she has some pretty interesting thoughts i thought on what her road has been like so far what it's been like dealing with these things that she's been forced to deal with absolutely i mean i, sh- I think that laura robson is in a peculiar and very unique position and it's something for people to kind of keep in mind or kind of to remember the context within which she operates which is a player who reached you know of all the th- of all the tournaments to win <laughs> When you're yeah. 14 years old to win junior Wimbledon and to kind of have this kind of precocious, witty kind of temperament and all these sorts of things. Like she was just kind of a, a goldmine, I think, to a lot of British press and, and to British sport. And, so, and British fans. And British I mean, fans she's as well. Yeah. popular. I mean, and worldwide, too. She is, always has pretty good crowds at her matches, no matter where she is, in my experience. Not Actually, not so much in Charles, but at nearly everywhere else I've seen her, she gets a good crowd. Tennis people know her and like her. She has... Something like over 170,000 Twitter followers, which is insane, which is way out, which is way outpacing her ranking. Yeah. There were points last year where she was ahead of Azarenka mm-hmm. in the Twitter rankings, and Azarenka was number one. Right. Yeah. Um, that's it, no longer the case, but still, it's just remarkable that could ever happen, considering their pedigrees. She's 19 and and still kind of on the rise, and depending on where you bank, you know, she's kind of one of those, I guess, right now, like whether you want to bet on black or bet on red or odds or evens it's like you have people who like truly believe in you know the upside and then you have the people who point to yeah well two weeks ago she lost to paulo ormachea uh in argentina in fed cup in an important match and here she you know demolishes number four agnieszka radvanska uh in madrid in arguably a a less important match i mean it's it's hard to gauge but she's in a unique situation i thought that it was really great how open she was in in terms of talking about her role within british sport you know kind of one of the few players i think that's ranked outside of the top you know 30 who travels with an on like a a press corps that follows her um which is pretty surprising so so here we go here is laura robson talking to us to end episode 38 thanks for listening folks and we will talk to you next week enjoy later hello hello laura robson 
is your first ever podcast you're telling us. We're excited to finally give you a first in your media career. Weird. Right? <laughs> I didn't mean it. I didn't mean it like that. Uh, good thing you added on the media career there at the end. Uh, I would say, yeah, thanks for having me. Obviously, good first uh, quarter of the season for you. Moving on to bigger and better things, I presume. I don't know if you could call it good. I would say okay in patches. Okay. Um, yeah, I started off the year pretty average, played a bit better in Melbourne and then worse, and then now a little bit better again. So it's a bit up and down, and so hopefully I'll kind of settle in now and play a bit better, just sort more of, consistent. Just yeah. sort of lap two for you around the main tour. I mean, you played Indy Wells for the first time last year in Miami. Now you're doing it again. Is it easier second time around at all? Uh, it's definitely better being in the main tour. Yeah. <laughs> than qualities that makes a huge difference you actually feel like you're part of the tournament so yeah I guess I don't feel like the newbie in the locker room anymore I think people as young as Vekic have that title <laughs> you passed it on to I Donna feel, well, you feel old you know, when you Isla, see someone like her Isla Tomjanovic and I were chatting in the locker room in Miami and we were both like we feel really old now and that happened quick, like quick it, yeah, yeah out of nowhere I just feel like ancient. So you can imagine what it must be like for someone like your doubles partner in Miami, Lisa, who's been around for decades, when she sees someone like half her age. Like, can you have any sense what that will be like someday when there's someone who who was born after you turn pro? Can you imagine that? I feel like I will not be playing as long as Lisa. Okay. <laughs> I think she's still absolutely amazing at doubles, and you know she always says she's going to stop whenever she feels like she can't compete with the best in the world and at the moment she still is so yeah props to her i mean like so you're coming off of i guess a five week stint in north america is that right um just about yeah this would be the fifth week so like is that the longest but then you get to indian wells a couple days before as well oh that's right you got there early yeah Yeah. so it's been it's been a while it's been a while i spent two weeks just at my hotel in miami just chill out oh yeah how do you how do you like the good old us of a how do you like it here Depends where I am. Yeah. I find, I know most players love Indian Wells because they play golf, but I yeah. don't. I'm really, really bad at it, so I, I don't find it as interesting as a place like Miami. Okay. Because so you, yeah. you, were, you were at Ultra. I was at Ultra, yes. How was twice. that for you? So how was that? It's excellent. I don't know if I could do the whole weekend. It's good to just go for two hours at a time, which is what I did. I went. So did you get like the tickets via the tournament or through like how do you, how does that whole thing work? Because a bunch of the there players are a lot went. of players at Ultra. Uh, a lot. So I can't like, think how... you guys bought the. I mean, who else went? Azarenka was there. Azarenka Sarovic went. Oh, but she would have been there with Red Food. So this one would presume. Yeah. One would presume. <laughs> and then Tip Sarovic, I think, knows a couple Maybe DJs because he's like okay. heavy into the dance music. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. My, my brother told me about it. Well, last year I was in my hotel room, my whole windows were shaking and yeah. stuff, and I was like, what is this? I'm trying to get to sleep. Um, but this year I thought I would be a part of it, and um, I went the first night for Swedish House Mafia, and then the last night for Swedish House Mafia as well, so I saw them twice, and they were excellent. But both times they just went for like two hours, because I can't do any more jumping than that. That's How was the crowd? Maximum. Amazing. Yeah. Actually, the second time was better. Um, I feel like is it packed it was in? Just... Like, are you in like sardines, or is there at least a little? I mean, because um, you've been to other festivals before. Yeah. So I would say it's not the worst one I've been to. <laughs> okay. I've been to a lot worse. And Jeannie and Heather were like, "Oh, I'm so sweaty," um, and I was like, "Girls, you have not been to an English festival, so don't complain about this." Um, but it was. It was really good. Let's talk about music that's more sort of your what you're more known for which we have in common, obviously, which is One Direction. How do, how do you feel about One Direction these days? Are you, are you still as much of a fan as you, you once were? Are you going with One Direction, or are you going out of One Direction? <laughs> I don't are you going means. the opposite direction? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I have cheesy music days where you just have to put on the Taylor Swift, uh-huh. T-Swizzle, and <laughs> One Direction stuff. I wouldn't include Justin Bieber in no. that. Um, but I actually liked one of his songs recently. As long as you love and me. I, yeah. That's a good one. That was a good one. <laughs> yeah. And then he did this other one as well, where I thought actually that's not bad. So props for that, Justin, J Biebs. <laughs> but there's the whole. Have you heard this song at the moment? They have. It's called Ready or Not. It's by this Disney girl. No. And it's actually like top ten on UK iTunes. 
out of nowhere and it's really catchy and there's this one line where it goes light my heart up baby like a matchstick that's solid that's That's the kind of song where I can get behind that's that's some Disney stuff that's like that's epic Disney work that's my favourite line of all time so do you feel like it's easy for you to be a tennis player and be in this bubble sort of and yet keep up with pop culture because it's something a lot of players don't seem to do I think we have a lot of free time in the hotel rooms in the evenings where, you know, most days if you're playing a match the next day you don't really feel like going out for dinner or if you do it's an early one so you're always back with plenty of time to check out the latest music and I go on all the radio playlists and stuff to find new stuff and um, yeah, try to keep up with some TV shows as well. Game of Thrones just started again. Mm-hmm. Super excited. I'm getting Zelko into it. Okay. He's downloading the first season at the moment. Very good. Oh, wow. I feel like he's going to love the PC. <laughs> like, seriously love her. Very cool. Very cool. But you obviously spend a lot of time looking for music on YouTube and stuff. <laughs> and now you are something of a YouTube sensation yourself. Segway. What were the cool reactions you got to like that video from the locker room? For other people around. Um, you were surprised at I people who watched it. I think everyone saw it. Yeah. yeah. I was actually really surprised with how many people saw it. It seemed, yeah, even all the ATP players watched it. So, yeah, I mean, it's good. Everyone liked it, and I feel like we peaked there. One hit wonder? Yeah, it's think? hard to talk. It is hard to talk because then you need to get, you know, better players, and you can't really get better. Got Maria already in there. Yeah, I mean, we would have to get, you know, Serena. And I feel like Roger she would to be do down the to do that. Then it might be worth it, maybe. Roger's too classy. Is he? I think is, he's kind of a dork Shake about it. Harlem Shake is not a classy thing. <laughs> I, don't I don't think you should do Harlem Shake. Sarcasm. I don't no, no, think Harlem no, 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 no. I don't think Harlem so Shake is, um, is my scene. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not coordinated enough to dance like that. So you're here. I don't think there's any British media here at this tournament. That's how, a first. How, is that actually a first for you? Has that ever happened before? Oh yeah, you have it. But it feel different for you at all. Well, it's weird that you guys are still requesting to talk to me, <laughs> even though there's no British press here. Um, but for the most part, we have all the British guys here. Um, yeah, last week we had two. Indian Wells, there's lots. Yeah, Indian Wells was the whole kind I of think, army, I think. Well, you know what? I think they go there on purpose. Yes. yes. They, they like, like the golf. They like the golf. Neil, like the, if you're listening to this, I know why you're in Indian Wells every year. <laughs> it's cute that you would you're think not that fooling Neil would anyone. to us, I don't think to our tiny little podcast. <laughs> what do you make of that? Because people, even who are not British, can sort of tell that the British situation, the magnifying glass, is sort of unique. We were talking about this a little bit just now in your press conference, but do you sense that you like, you and Heather and Andy are in a more challenging, or at least you know, unique sort of stance because of that. Like I feel like with the Americans, there's a lot of them. We kind of have a lot. It, sort of. I think everyone has it tough in their own country. It just happens that the British press is well known for that. You know, I think any of the Eastern European girls, where there's only one of them from each country, I, I think Babos has it pretty bad mm. in yeah. Hungary. So, um, I think it's tough wherever you're from, but you just have to deal with it, and yeah, we all do pretty well, I think. To get easier? Um, depends how well you're doing. If you're winning a lot of matches, then you don't mind going into press, but if you're not, then it kind of sucks. That's something that players sort of get, have to get used to when they rise up in the rankings. We're seeing this with Sloane Stevens a little bit now where she didn't used to get requested that much, but now she sort of has to, because she's top 20, has to come in and like explain losses, sort of. And like a one-round, so, first-round yeah. loss from Sloan, like last year, Wouldn't, we'd no be one like, oh, cared. that's all right, it's like you're trying, and you know, you're still developing, and now if she loses first round, we kind of all have to pull her in to, to ask her about yeah. it, and that's tough for her, you know. Um, yeah, I'm sort of, I don't know if you would say lucky, but I've, had it since I was 14, getting requested almost every time I look, like lose or win. Um, so you do get used to it, but um, I think also when I was having a big patch of losses, it wasn't surprising because at the time I was still ranked, you know, 140 or 150. So um, at the moment, you know, the higher you get, the more surprising it is when you lose. But you know, everyone loses, so. Now, let's talk about right when back when you were 14, you won Wimbledon, obviously. I was in London that summer. It was a big deal for a junior it's Grand Slam. Ago. It was a long time. What do you making me feel old. I know. Well, you are old now. You're, you're 19. Geezer. That's ancient. Geezer. Ancient. What do you, when out. you look back on that now, what do you make of that whole experience? I don't know. It's, it's so weird for me to even think about because you can't, 
even imagine how it was for me at the time because, you know, it was my first ever Junior Girl Slam yeah. and I was a special exempt. I was supposed to be a wild card and I just got in the last minute because I made the final the week before. And I, you know, I played a couple of junior tournaments before that and that was it. And yeah, out of nowhere, basically. Just had one of those and then weeks. to have every newspaper with your face on it. Your trophy's presentation on Center Court, right? No. On court one. Was it? No, centre court we did the thing in the evening where you go into the royal box. Yeah. But my match was on court one, but you know, they had it scheduled so that the Williams final would finish just before my match started, so that I would be on BBC One and everything. And we had more people watching my final than the Williams final, which was crazy. And yeah, it is like you don't know how to deal with it. (laughs) It basically it's just a one-off thing unless you win more than seniors so um because we see you as this like sort of media veteran at this point for your age but back then you were you had no no experience whatsoever i can't think i was just kind of i did all these interviews i was just kind of saying the first thing that popped into my head and um now you don't do that i know i try not to do that now (laughs) Uh, you can tell i ended up saying a few funny things i think out of nowhere and my mum was like wow you have a sense of humor yeah (laughs) she didn't know she didn't know. She's no. like, I don't find it funny. <laughs> Not at all. And my brother just called me a dog. <laughs> what do you, how do you see, you know, from there, how has that made it easier going forward? Having won a Grand Slam title, has, being in this sort of spotlight, does it make it easier now when you go into a Grand Slam event, even though it is the seniors? Do you, a little, any sort of like, I've been here, I know how to win these magnified matches at all? Um, what do you think about it or not? Is it something that's there in your mind, back of the mind? No, I think it depends on how much confidence you have at the time. Because going into US Open last year, I had a lot of confidence in how I was playing, and that just kind of allowed me to push through when I was in a winning position. But then, you know, Indian Wells, I was a set and four one up, and I was playing really well. But then you just sort of get tight, and you overthink things, and um, yeah, it can happen whenever. So I don't think juniors has really anything for me in that way. Um, that happens to everybody though. Yeah, I mean, you, people, but people... It's actually tough though because you go from being number one in the world in juniors when you're like 15 and then you it's just down from there. Right. <laughs> right. Well you start at the bottom of, yeah, of another ladder. Yeah, you start ladder. at the bottom yeah. and then you're so used to winning matches easily and you're used to girls not getting your serves back and then all of a sudden everyone's getting your serve back, especially on red clay. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, it's it's difficult, but um, the transition takes a while. There's like some people, some players have said that they want to be self-aware, like that they want to be self-aware so that when they're out on court, like when they start panicking, they know why they're panicking, so that they stop it. And then there's some players who are like, I don't want to be self-aware at all. Like I don't want to overthink things. I kind of want to be dumb on court so that I don't panic. You know, like what's your take on that? Like which would you kind of rather be? Are you a thinker on court? Right, like, do, do you think you overthink Not a huge too much? thinker, but I think you always have to, you know, know what you're doing on court, otherwise... I mean, some people do have the matches where you just hit winners for the whole match, no. but it's one out of, you know, 500 that you have those days, and so in general you just have to think on court, and... Like, what are you telling yourself to the extent that you can repeat I'm it on air? I'm just saying, chill out, you know? <laughs> yeah. You know the things you don't, you, we can't repeat on air. You're, you're one of the best monologuers on the tour. People, you know... Something I'm not proud of. <laughs> no, why not? It's a skill. Is it, though? People enjoy it. People enjoy it. People, People really enjoy, enjoy it. Enjoy it. Hard, I mean, My coach doesn't enjoy it. No? My mum doesn't enjoy it. No? So I you just feel compelled to talk, like, just mutter to yourself? Or is it like... Because most of the time, it's just, you're, just, you're just ripping yourself. I think that's almost what's... It's sarcastic. It's all at you. Seemingly... You know, like charming people, about it. Yeah, exactly. I used to do it a lot more yeah. than I do now. So yeah. I am getting better. It's something that I've started to grow out of, I guess. Um, but, yeah, before, every time I missed a shot, it'd be like, oh, good job, Laura. Well done. Are, are you conscious of when you're playing a match that's televised versus not televised? That kind of thing? Uh, well, you're aware when there are microphones at the back of the court. Yeah. Because then you get code violations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, I don't know, I don't really change anything based on that, though. 
I try to do my hair a bit nicer if it's a TV girl. Okay. <laughs> so, so socially in the locker room, you seemed obviously you knew Lisa before that. You know, gotten along with a bunch of other players who aren't British. How do you sort of you know situate yourself in there? What do you make of the whole sort of environment of the WTA tour in terms of the, the you know from like a anthropological point of view with the people there? I think I get on with just about everyone. Um, you know, there are some people that you just don't speak to as much as others. Um, but you find you find your group, and you know, it never hurts to be friendly to everyone. And um, I think in general, it's a good vibe. And if you want to ask someone about music taste, you have to ask Serena. She has the weirdest <laughs> mix, <laughs> and she's getting ready. It's Does she like, blast it? Yes. Like, is it, you can hear it from the earphones, or she's playing no, it on a No, she's playing it on speaker? her iPhone. Oh, okay. And it will kind of go, yesterday it was Guns N' Roses, one song, and then it went to Beyonce, Upgrade You, which was... <laughs> That's jarring. I mean, yeah, it was, <laughs> but Axel Rose in to a Beyonce. good way, yeah, in yeah. a good way. So, yeah, I think she's on it. Do you think that people, like, kind of have this, the wrong impression of the WTA locker room that, I mean, because it's, it's over the years gotten this reputation of being a, a catty place there where the girls are being kind of a bit high school, I suppose. I mean, cliquish and things like that. And is that accurate, do you think, at all, or is that unfair? Uh, I wouldn't say that's very accurate. I've, and, you know, I've never seen anyone bitching and yeah. stuff. So, yeah, no, it's generally a nice place. Yeah. Very friendly. Yeah, good. Uh, so looking back, uh, you've had a lot of big wins, um, and you've had other wins that like maybe don't get headlines, but you know they're good wins for you. Like when you look back, what's the win of your career at this moment? Like the one that you're super proud of? Because you've got three Slam champions on your. Uh... <laughs> you won a silver medal. You won Junior Wimbledon. You done some uh, stuff. Kind of you done you're some stuff. You're a little bit of a thing. Oh, you put me on the spot here. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna go with Lena. Really Lena. Yeah. Okay. At US Open, just because you know Kim is an unbelievable player, obviously, but at the time that I played her, she obviously wasn't at her best, and you know, it was her last ever tournament, so I'm sure she played with a lot of pressure on herself as well. So, um, yeah, Lena was better for me because she just won Cincinnati, she just won Cincy, she demolished her first two opponents, and yeah, she was playing well, so. That was good. And you won it in three sets too, which is which yeah. is solid. Yes, especially after losing the second set so tight. Yes. Seven six. And then you know James Corden, mm -hmm. he left after the second set. Yeah. So he was watching, and I was thinking, winning two. Win two was he sitting two. in your box, or you was sitting in a suite? No, or he was sitting you? in one of the front row boxes. Okay. Um, nearer to Carlos, okay. where he was sitting on the side. Um, but yeah, he left. After the second set, I was thinking, oh, this is no good sign. So <laughs> I thought I have to win after that. You were mentioning that impressed how you notice everything that goes on in the court. Every single person who's walking in, walking out, sitting wherever. What is that like? Is that like sort of like a sensory overload when you're playing a match? I wish I didn't do it, but I just notice things. And it's mostly when I'm sitting down at the change of end, so I don't really see people behind me when I'm sitting down obviously facing the other way. Um, <laughs> good insights, good insights. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, just sometimes if there's a 25 second break uh, in between each point, you have a bit of time to look around. Right. And um, I try not to look at Zelko or Diane too much. Yeah. So you've got to look somewhere else. Yeah. Who, who so is, I see most, yeah, I see most people. Are there other celebrities you've noticed at your matches where you're the, like the double take? Or even just not even like a celebrity, like some like I don't know a fellow fellow player or someone who just caught you right and were like, oh, what are they doing here? And it ever like maybe threw you for a point or two? What James Corden? I had to look about three times before I was like, yeah, I think it's him. Yeah. Um, and then you see, I mean, you notice the good-looking people in the crowd. Sure, sure. Um, and whoever is chanting the best, you notice. Whoever's got British flags and stuff on, you notice. So. What, are, what are your? You have some of the more you know, good traveling group of fans, yes. the chanting everywhere. What yes, are some of your favorite chants that you get, um, if you can perform any of them for us here? There's not a lot you can do with my name, though. So I find Fedka Heather had the best one. Um, what was Heather's? There was... <laughs> I don't know if I can say it. <laughs> you can give it a try, and if okay. not, then... So we'll it started off, and it was like, Hurricane Heather, she'll blow you away. She'll blow you away. 
She'll blow you away. And then there was one. That's pretty bit. good. That's in Israel? Uh, no, in Sweden last okay, year. Yeah. We had this big group of guys that came cool. over from Sterling. And they were very, very good. They did not stop cheering for the whole two days. Awesome. And I was, they looked, they had no voice at the end. Um, and then Valley's one was like, ah, about to shut. I said, ah, about to shut. That's pretty good. <laughs> That's amazing. Solid. That is I solid. wish mine was that good because mine was just kind of like, um, let's go, Laura. And, there's you know, there's, there's one of the US seven, the Laura Robson. Yeah. That's a pretty good one. Yeah. And yeah. they did the dark theme tune. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think that was good at all. Thank you, Laura. Um, <laughs> one is always pretty good and we come up with some good ones at um at fed cup as well heather and i which was the one that we did i can't remember anymore next time next time so have you been distracted by something someone shouted out in a a match Um, i have to think so because obviously people you know you hear i mean i was actually really shocked to like find out yesterday like you hear everything when she was on court court. when i was on court with with Venus. venus like and playing on that Althea yeah. Gibson court like and people were just like talking and I was just shocked that you could really just hear conversations as you're walking around I love how you're just like yeah yes yeah, I was playing with Venus yeah I'm just like anyways uh, but yeah <laughs> no big deal my life um, is awesome no you hear you hear a lot uh, any any chance you hear obviously the best one that I've ever had was randomly my second round, second or first round doubles match was Sally Pierce at the 2010 Australian Open doubles. And there was about 20 guys who were all Australian and they came so prepared. They had, yeah. they had props. This one guy had a giant phone and so he <laughs> had a pretend call in the match and was like, Mom, can't answer the phone right now. Watching some palm play. I was like, yeah, I can't believe I'm watching her either. But she's playing with an Aussie. <laughs> and it was like that. And every change of ends, they had something different. And they had the umpire in stitches. And they were getting the ball kids involved. They were like, ball kids, give us away. <laughs> the whole time until That's they did work. it. Until so, they did so it, you, yeah. but when we see the Australian. Like, I hope you're going to edit out all my singing, by the way. No, no, no. no. We're no. going to put it on we're loop, gonna, actually. We're going to auto tune it. <laughs> That'd be solid. Please do. Speak, so, last thing, speaking of music, let our guests pick an outro song for your segment. Play you out. Any song, your song of the moment, your anthem, whatever your you know, go-to the Laura song Robson is. The Laura Robson anthem. What is that? Fresh Is it, can it, I mean... It could be anything. It can be anything? Anything, anything. We'll find anything for you. But, like, anything? Anything, anything. Okay, so what I listened to today before my match was Kendrick Lamar, Backstreet Freestyle. Okay. <laughs> Solid. So I don't know if you actually want nope, to play we're going to play it. We're we'll going to play it. Okay, yeah, wow. no, we, we are not rated. Thank you very much for joining us, Thank Laura. You. Thanks my for pleasure. being here. And, yeah. I'm going to get half that All my life I want money and power. Respect my mind or die from less shout. I pray my dick get big as the Eiffel Tower. So I can fuck the world for 72 hours. Goddamn, I got bitches. Damn, I got bitches. Damn, I got bitches. Wifey, girlfriend, and mistress. All my life I want money and power, respect my mind, no die from less, y'all. Let it run, Ali. Martin had a dream.